Hello and welcome to this week's episode, in which we're taking an in-depth look at Casino Royale and how the 2006 film compares to the first James Bond novel written by Ian Fleming. We originally recorded this episode to tie in with the release of the new film No Time to Die, which was set for the 2nd of April 2020, but because of COVID-19 the film has been pushed back to November. We've still decided to put up this episode now, and who knows, maybe we'll have time to do an episode on Skyfall instead to tie in with this film, especially if you let us know you enjoyed this type of episode. Uh, Both Alan and I are doing well, and we hope you are too. We are not sure how we're going to record, but the 21st rewrite will still continue maybe with some special guests as necessary. Thanks again for listening and continuing to support the show. Here is Casino Royale. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today we have the pleasure of going over Casino Royale, based on the first novel by Ian Fleming, Casino Royale, which was released in 1952. Disclaimer, I'm not a huge James Bond fan, so I'm not up to speed on all the films but I must say that revisiting this film made me really intrigued by the whole lore and the whole mythology that has been built around James Bond. And I'm sure for you too, especially because you grew up around that because, you know, you're British. Yeah, Bond uh, is an <laughs> absolute institution in Britain. And mm-hmm. it's one of those things that is a big event when a new film comes out, entire families go together to the cinema the older films will be on TV regularly, especially yeah. around Christmas time, well, any kind of time of the year when people are going to be at home. It's always got a special place in the heart of the British public. And even royal families like make cameos and stuff. It seems to be like Absolutely, the film yeah. that attracts a lot of you know high-profile people. And also, I think it's kind of... Um, because I was looking at the box office numbers for for the film as well. I was just interested because it seemed that in Britain, it makes so much more money than it does in, in the rest of the world because it is very part of that culture. I mean, it makes a lot of money here in America as well, especially recently, but yeah. it's kind of like Star Wars. Star Wars makes a whole lot of money here in America, but it doesn't necessarily translate to somewhere like China or, you know, even though it is very universal, it, it feels like this is... Britain Star Wars in a way. Exactly. And actually, Star Wars is the only film above a Bond film in the box office for mm. the UK. So mm-hmm. just looking at those stats, it's number two all-time UK box office is Skyfall, 103.2 million pounds. Number three was Spectre with 95 million pounds. Casino Royale, the film we're going to discuss today, comes in at number 19 and Quantum of Solace at 38. So these four films, they're all in the top 40, and three of them are in the top 20, and two of them are in the top five. Mm-hmm. Hugely significant cultural events. That they're higher up than films that an American audience would be thinking, well, where's Avengers standing in this mm. in this chart? And it's below Skyfall and Spectre. Well, I mean, that's it's, it's also kind of in that world because Marvel has... I don't know, like 20 films as well. So it's like a continued story. But the unique thing about Bond is that they're all very standalone films. You know, they all kind of have their own 
you don't need to see one necessarily to enjoy the other. You can just jump in in the middle, beginning or end, which exactly. in my case, I kind of came in with Casino Royale. Um, which is a film that was designed to be a, a reboot, right. essentially. And we'll talk a little bit about this. We're going to, of course, be looking at this from a screenwriting perspective mm -hmm. and why this is an interesting topic to talk about. We don't have the same level of knowledge as an expert on James Bond specifically. Mm -hmm. What we do know about is screenwriting, and we're looking at this in terms of a project that was meant to reboot what was seen as a failing franchise. The Pierce Brosnan era of James Bond did really well mm -hmm. financially, but critically the films were considered lazy and getting lazier and becoming more outlandish. And this all culminated really with Die Another Day, which is the film preceding Casino Royale, which had an invisible car. And this was when oh, the audiences... I did. <laughs> I did. I forgot about yes, that. Yes. <laughs> this is when the audience was asked to believe in something that was just too much, I think. Yeah. And essentially, the the James Bond Eon films, as they're known, Everything or Nothing, this production company founded by Cubby Broccoli and his partner, Harry, these films really started with Sean Connery in mm -hmm. the 1960s. And they had consistently been putting out a couple of films every every few years, really. There's, what is it, 20, 28 films since 1962, starting with Sean Connery, changes of staff, changes of lead actor. But clearly the Bond franchise was in trouble. Cubby's daughter, Barbara, is the executive producer now and his stepson, Michael. And they've been the ones who have been producing all of the films of the, the Pierce Brosnan era and the Daniel Craig era. So they were really stuck. And I heard an interview with Barbara Broccoli where she was saying, my father always said, if you have a problem, you go back to Fleming, you go back to the books. And they really took that advice on board for Casino Royale. There had been all this legal trouble, which had essentially come about because Ian Fleming had shared the story idea for Thunderball with a guy called um, Evan McClory. Right. He was a Irish director, no? Yeah. So Kevin McClory had the rights to Thunderball as a result of this legal action that he had supposedly developed the story alongside Ian Fleming right. and claimed ownership of the James Bond character as a result. None of this stuff got fully resolved. Essentially, he always retained the rights to the book Thunderball only. And he remade that with Sean Connery as a film called Never Say Never Again. And this is what's called as the, the non-Eon versions of James Bond. Right. He returned 12 years after the after he left being mm -hmm. James Bond. I do remember that uh, with Irvin Keshner as director. Yeah, so uh, let's not do the whole story. But just to put it very quickly, without trying to get too bogged down with the details, essentially, Sony traded some rights that MGM United Artists had to Spider-Man for Thunderball and Casino Royale. And so once MGM United Artists had the rights back for Casino Royale, 
they were free to make a film about this book, which they never had been able to before because the rights were with this other person mm. who had been for years trying to create his own separate James Bond franchise, essentially, which he did legally have the rights to do, but only one book. <laughs> so it's kind of confusing, but essentially it seems like everything really aligned in retrospect, it looks that way, because the Bond franchise was failing a little bit. Pierce Brosnan essentially was done with the role, and it was an opportunity to reboot it. Mm. And this reboot doesn't mean everything changes. It's the same executive producers. Judy Dench had started portraying M in Goldeneye in 1996, and she's stayed actually as the, the one character who doesn't vary in terms mm -hmm. of actor. But for everyone else, it's it's pretty much a reboot. And essentially the screenwriters as well. Mm -hmm. The the team of uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who had written some of the James Bond films for, for Pierce Brosnan, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day. And also ironically, they wrote the Johnny English film as well. Oh, interesting. All huge commercial successes. And if you look at their critical reception uh, you can look at a website like rotten tomatoes their ratings are bottom of the gutter you know johnny english is something like 33 percent the first one I yes that was funny um the world is not enough at 52 percent die another day at 57 clearly there was something going wrong here oh but these yeah. screenwriters are the it's the same team that mm -hmm. also have written all of the daniel craig era films which have been received tremendously well. So it's not entirely a case of writing. It's also a case of what approach they were taking with that writing. Mm, mm -hmm. Are they going to write in an invisible car or are they going to go back to the roots and try and create this gritty Bond character? And the reason why I really love Casino Royale as a project and just why I think it's really worth looking at in these terms as a screenplay is because it really asks the question of what kind of man is able to kill other people on behalf of his government and how does that affect him as a person mm -hmm. something that had turned into parody we'd had the austin powers movies we'd had johnny english and even the bond films themselves were just becoming ridiculous or had always been slightly ridiculous and this really took a completely different direction and said let's do a deep character study realistically what kind of person is james bond Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I feel like in a way it was just changing the intention of what they wanted to do with uh, the characters and the material they have and craft it into a much more gritty and a little bit more, like you said, character based and a bit more authentic in that way. I think speaking of reboots, I think every time they recast James Bond is essentially a reboot. But I think what felt different with this one was it was just the approach they took. You know, it was much more grounded. You don't have all these like crazy gadgets. You have something that's more, like you said, the psychological framework of this character. And 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 having read the book for this, I, I mean, the story is already there. Like they didn't really divert too much from what was there. They pretty much stuck to Ian Fleming's original year one of James Bond. You know, I think that was probably the key of going back to the roots of like what he thought this character was so i thought that was really interesting to reading the book because he wrote this in 1952 and just sort of 
kind of seeing how that was mirroring not only who Ian Fleming was, but sort of the politics of the world at the time. I thought that was really interesting too, and how it translated into the book. It was also interesting to see how this modern retelling of the original book uh, they shifted some things too, because obviously the world's changed since 1952. So I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that, about how they did, why they changed certain things. But, you know, getting someone like Daniel Craig too adds a little bit more of an authenticity to the character in terms of giving him nuances and emotion. And I was surprised at how great the script was. I think the book was really good. I was not expecting to love the book as much as I did, mm-hmm. but I really did enjoy the book a lot. And I really am happy that they were very faithful to the book. They changed a couple things, but I mean, I wouldn't call it just a couple things. They they are very different, but at the same time, I know what you mean. That the heart of the story mm-hmm. and the major twists and turns of the story try to trace alongside Casino Royale, the book. We'll talk about exactly how it matches yeah. up over the the course of the podcast. Yeah, I think essentially what it is is. Overall, they try to make it as much of a James Bond film as it was, but the heart of it, the characters, I think that's very much still in there. And that's what I really was enjoying about the book was all this like, you know, because in a book you're hearing all his thoughts and you're hearing her thoughts and you're hearing all these different characters and their intentions. And so I got kind of attached to that reading the book and I was happy that a lot of that translated over. Yeah, so at this stage as well, The other thing just to keep in mind, and always the problem for James Bond, is that the audience goes in with certain expectations, and you have to find a way to satisfy all of those expectations while also leaving the audience feeling that they have never seen this before and that it's really exciting and brand new. Mm -hmm. And you can't go too far either way. And of course, when Daniel Craig was cast as Bond, there was a big uproar about it, essentially in the press, amongst critics, amongst other film directors. Sam Mendes, notably, was one of the people who thought this is never going to work and commented about it publicly in in a in an interview. And of course That's he's awkward. happy to say <laughs> No, he was, you know, he was obviously very happy to say, I'm glad I was proven wrong, but but at the time I agreed with everyone else that this is a terrible idea to make Daniel Craig Bond. This new Bond, I think, is he's coming from a completely different place to the the Bond that we're used to. The Bond that we're used to, highly affected by Roger Moore's tenure as being James Bond, there was an injection of class into the character, whereas Sean Connery's Bond was a bit more of a tough guy. And then Pierce Brosnan had pretty much followed along in that vein. Timothy Dalton had been this tough guy bond and it hadn't really worked with audiences at the time people say that timothy dalton probably was a bit ahead of his time because of course when this this one comes along everyone did respond positively to that kind of bond but i see him more of he's more like a rugby player you know he's he's a big guy he's athletic he goes rogue he doesn't obey orders anymore He's only recently been promoted to double O status, and that's made apparent in the first scene of the film. Mm-hmm. So that serves as the reboot, essentially. They're saying, this is a new Bond. This is a new agent. He's just been promoted to this level. And that was a great and way to And he goes start. rogue straight away. Yeah. yeah. 
I thought that was a great way to start the film, and just in terms of story, the, the way they structured kind of his the conversation and the dialogue he had with the people that he was killing in the beginning of the film. I thought that was very cleverly done. Yeah, and then there's always been two problematic aspects in the Bond character. I feel uh, one is his emotional detachment, mm-hmm. and this screenplay is very happy to say that emotional detachment is a negative trait. It's something you wouldn't want to have in your own personality. You wouldn't want to be like this guy. It takes away a little bit of the charm and the sheen off James Bond Mm -hmm. and makes you, as an audience member, look at the character for who he really is. What kind of person can be so disposable with other people, using them to achieve his own goals? Mm. And then the other problematic aspect of the Bond character, of course, has always been this element of the Bond girl, the woman who accompanies him on the mission. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, they become deeply attracted to each other, end up sleeping together. And usually she dies or something happens. Sometimes the film will end on a positive note and they're happily making love right in the final scene. And then you never see her again in the next film. So he's obviously moved on from her. Mm-hmm. And for the 21st century, there was clearly a feeling that the female characters need to be tougher, they need to be wittier, they need to be able to match Bond or be superior to him. And so this version of Vesper Lind is someone who is immediately able to fight Bond in a battle of wits, is immediately able to mm. have a smarter comeback to any joke that he makes. Mm-hmm. And so that any kind of romance that blossoms between them needs to be on her terms, not just his. Mm-hmm. And that was obviously an important thing to start to address, I think, in the Bond franchise overall, mm-hmm. is just the extent to which the female characters were just throwing themselves at him to the point that it was becoming ridiculous and unbelievable. Yeah, just feeling a little bit more grounded in terms of a more dimensional character which also speaks to the villain as well i think the villain wasn't just like you know a dr evil type where he wants to take over the world or something you know there's there's a more of a resonance to the climate in today's world of like terrorism and exactly and post 9-11 yeah there's there's it's not necessarily well obviously he's evil you know but he's the villain but there's it feels more like he could be a villain in real life like this guy could ex- probably exist except maybe not with the, the the eye thing that he has well who knows i don't know but you know it, it feels grounded in terms of they feel like they live in this world today and i think that's what probably uh added to the appeal of this particular film and, and not necessarily the other ones like you say even though they were making more money I think the the general consensus was that it was a throwaway. You know, it wasn't like you would think about it afterwards. And this one left. This one definitely leaves you with a feeling of um, you're not necessarily, you want to be all of who this guy is. You see sort of his cracks and his flaws and they don't romanticize it as much as they do in the other films. He's not just a cool guy who drinks martinis and, and he gets all the girls. I mean, he still does that, but there's this added element of you see that he's not necessarily the happiest person and the film is honest with portraying that a bit and showing the consequences of what he does. You know, I think 
it really feels that this film really did focus on those consequences of living the life that he does live, which ultimately I think that's what a good script does. Mm -hmm. What a good story is, is to show consequences of a character's actions, which is what I found very surprising about the script. I thought the script was very layered with different themes and, and it had a, had a weight to it. It didn't just feel like a blockbuster script per se. Exactly. And going back to Fleming's book, there is an emotional cost to the character and there is an origin story mm-hmm. in Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. And that origin story comes from the fact that Bond falls in love. It's the fact that with Vespa, it's not just attraction. It becomes a genuine connection. And the book's version of Bond is ready to propose to her. He's, he's ready to mm-hmm. ask her to marry him. And it's that betrayal and that discovery that he can never trust someone fully that is kind of his origin story. It's that realization that in the world that he operates in, he can either be a spy or he can be a normal person, but he can never be both. And Mm -hmm. he can never have a normal relationship and he probably can never fall in love. And the screenplay to Casino Royale grapples with those questions and is able to be a bit more introspective than perhaps even Fleming was because Fleming was a womanizer and he doesn't get too self-doubting about that element of Bond's character but he does look at Bond as this character who needs to be created and he's created by the things that happen to him in his life the the decisions he makes the betrayals that happen to him the cases he's on the people he comes into contact with all form who he is But I do feel that the final version of the screenplay after um, not just Neil Purvis and Robert Wade had adapted the book, but also once Paul Haggis had come in and said, your screenplay is missing an act three and you need to have a climax to it. You need to have a showdown that isn't just like the book, because in the book, of course, it's very literary. Bond reads about his betrayal in a letter he gets from, from Vesper as opposed to coming face to face with any enemy and the book does become slow and most of the big events of casino royale have happened by about the halfway point of the book the big gambling showpiece is right in the middle and then the torture comes a little bit after that and then you've got a whole third of the book to read about his romance with vespa Mm -hmm. and that wouldn't really work for the kind of film that we're As I said, the audience has certain expectations about Mm. the Bond genre, so we need the big showdown to come right at the end. Mm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I think you couldn't end it the way the book ends it at all. But I I feel they were very good at taking the beats and adapting it to a a story format that's recognizably Bond. But even, even with that, I feel the structure of this film feels different because... You do spend some time with, you know, the villain dies. I remember the first time I watched him, like, oh, that's obviously not the bad guy because he's dead already. And then now we're hanging out with these two, watching them fall in love. It felt different. It felt like all of a sudden it's like all of that disappears. And, and then what happens when, when this this man who wasn't letting anybody in, he's willing to, to open himself up and go there. And obviously we see where that leads to. But I feel 
even within the film structure, it still feels different from the other films. It feels like it has much more of a textured feeling to it because now we're spending time alone with these characters and not focusing on the plot, which eventually we do get back to. But I enjoy that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's certain updates that, that happen as well. Bond no longer. It, it's surprising to read the description of Bond as a as a person in in his original form in Casino Royale, mm-hmm. Fleming describes him as smoking 70 cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the world we live in now, that is just not something that anyone would think any athletic secret agent would be doing, is filling his lungs full of tar, right, <laughs> 70 right. cigarettes a day. He does still drink quite a lot. He does. But aside from that, Bond is athletic um, he's portrayed as being ex-SAS perhaps clearly a man who considers uh, his own physical health and fitness to be highly important you can't look like Daniel Craig and expect us to believe that he's drinking that every day all day mm-hmm. yep. you know yeah no I agree and obviously the book was written in the 1950s because there was definitely parts of the book was like oh yep he said that that may not necessarily be the way he describes women uh, yeah there's some the way he, outright misogyny yeah throughout. although oh, yeah. that is important to take in the context of this is what this character is yes this is this character yes. and it's actually in the sense that it's unfiltered i think an author today would try and disguise that aspect of their character a little bit, try and try and gloss it over a bit and pretend he's not that bad. Whereas Fleming just, in thinking that it was something to aspire to, he puts it out very clearly on the page. Bond is a misogynist. Yeah. And he thinks women should not get involved. He, he says men should be doing men's things and women should be concerned about their pots and pans. <laughs> he does he, say he that. He literally says that in the book. Oh, yeah. And so that doesn't work in the 21st century version of Bond, no. but it's interesting to see that that's where Fleming was coming from originally. Mm-hmm. And so Vesper, as a character, is very different in the book. It's it's a different world yeah. she lives in. Yeah, she yeah. lives in a different time period mm-hmm. where she is not expected to even walk around the casino unchaperoned, for example. She does feel very different in the film because in the book, in the last third, when she's, we don't know what's going on at that time, but we feel like something's bugging her. The way he describes her like temper tantrums and her way, the way she's handling the situation, you can tell, and it's not James Bond's perspective. This is Ian Fleming writing in the third party. The way he's describing her doing these, I was just very, uh, like, I, I, you could see where his perspective is too as an author, not just as him writing for James Bond, but the way he sees women and the way he sees them being emotional. Yeah. So there's definitely some, it's, yeah. It's an interesting time capsule mm-hmm. in that sense because you are seeing that this is a quality that at the time was considered rational or admirable mm-hmm. and that today we we can't even really accept it as as it is it it shocks us and there's probably other parts of the book that were meant to shock the reader mm-hmm. but it's actually the things like we've just mentioned it's a misogyny yeah. and the fact that bond is smoking 70 cigarettes a day that really stand out as whoa what what's going on <laughs> Yeah, and but nonetheless, though I, I I do feel that 
there was some very in-depth sort of I, I think one of my favorite chapters is the one called nature of evil where he's having that conversation with matisse i i really quite enjoyed that i thought that was like a nice sort of let's pause the story for a second and kind of reflect on well, kind of like what is this role he's dealing with what is evil and are we doing the right thing so i i think there was a level of that already in his book as well and that was a question that was coming up at that time that fleming was writing the mm. the world war which had its very clear sides of good and evil suddenly became hey well the soviets were our allies in order to defeat the nazis but now they're our enemy and we're involved in this cold war and the lines were becoming blurrier and blurrier about who was good and who was bad and bond finds himself in that place questioning whether it's worth doing what he's doing and Matisse is a really great character in the book. I really enjoy that version of Matisse. He does get some redemption, actually, because in Quantum of Solace, they write that scene into the film. And it's a, it's a much abridged version of that scene, but it does happen that Bond goes and essentially apologizes to him. And Matisse tells him Spoiler alert. similar things. Okay. Yeah, spoiler alert. But Matisse... <laughs> yeah. Matisse repeats some lines from pretty book. much from the book, from that uh, chapter on the nature of evil. So he does get to do that, but it, they had to save that part for okay. Quantum of Solace. Because I did enjoy that from the book. Not not just the whole, that conversation, but I felt their friendship was something that I really enjoyed reading the book. Mm -hmm. And then in the film, I, I felt like, well, he, in the in the film, you're, you, you leave thinking he's a traitor and that he betrayed james bond so i felt that felt a little oh well, i really enjoyed yeah, that it's a shame book. because yes in the book matisse is his ally his he's the one who saves him essentially and i like the banter between the two and, of them i thought that was really funny and they're meant to be old friends and that's something mm -hmm. that's taken out of the screenplay as well he's he just turns up in montenegro yeah. and that's it he, he meets this guy and he's introduced to him as rene matisse whereas in ian fleming's casino royale he meets him and he's really pleased to see his old buddy Matisse is going to be on the same mission as him. Yeah. Um, Felix Leiter as well is a character who is much more friendly, amiable in the book. And from Texas. Yeah, he's a he's a Texan. I kept picturing a Texas accent, so I was very disappointed when I didn't hear it. <laughs> from Jeffrey Wright, but it's okay. Yeah, so Jeffrey Wright played him as a more neutral yeah. CIA, kind of more bitter and mm -hmm. definitely doesn't have the charm and the the lust for life that Fleming's version of Leiter had. Yeah, maybe they, they felt like that could take away from the character of James Bond. But what did you think of the changing of the locations, uh, you know, from northern France to Montenegro? And I thought that was... Interesting. I, 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 I try to look that up as to why they changed it, but I never saw I think it's partially audience expectation. So audiences have come to expect Bond films to be taking place in all manner of exotic locations. Mm -hmm. This one does jump around quite quickly. There's a scene in Uganda. Madagascar. So Madagascar, and then obviously Montenegro. The Bahamas. Yeah, the Bahamas. Whereas... Fleming's story entirely takes place on the Normandy coast. And again, again, I think it reflects the world that they lived in and the 
the frontiers, the the way they saw the world. Mm. This was an exotic adventure for an Englishman in the fifties, was to go abroad to to France, <laughs> which is right across. Exactly, yeah. and and he he refers to being a hundred and thirty miles away from London, mm -hmm. out of their reach, out of the protection of MI six, whereas mm. this is an internet age bond, a telecommunications age bond, who's able mm. to log into the Secret Service's database while he's in the Bahamas and have M checking up on what he's doing at the same time in real time. It's yeah. just the nature of the spying game and the sense, yeah. again, that this has become this globalized struggle against terrorism as mm. opposed to the battle of these powers, England, France, and the United States against Russia. And in one setting. Yeah. And this, you know, casino, which I really enjoyed as a book too. I thought that was really cool how essentially this sort of world war of spies was like concentrated in this table. I thought that was really cool. But you're right, like in in in, in a more modern sense, you, you kind of have to go all over. And also because... In James Bond films, that's what you do. You go from one location to another. It wouldn't yep. be a James Bond film if you didn't do that. So uh, it's what the it's almost what the audience is demanding yeah. without even saying it. Mm -hmm. Because it does feel like there's an independent art house version of Bond that could be a very compelling thriller that just mm -hmm. took place in, in the casino. Yeah. But that's not what the Eon films version of Bond is doing. Yeah. When I was watching the film, I felt like, well, they're really taking a while to get to this casino because they start with uh, they're in Uganda and then they go to Madagascar. By the way, that that whole sequence in Madagascar, I forgot how amazing that was, the whole parkour. <laughs> yeah, <That> I uh, <laughs> just <laughs> I noted down a few things that were just early 2000s. And well, yeah, parkour that, is one of the there was just this huge there was a craze, interest, a craze park, yeah. of parkour. Around that time, and they were, but they it was were just taking advantage of that. Yeah, it, it was brilliantly shot. I thought it was, it was great. Like the choreography, thought it was really well done. I really enjoyed that sequence and the whole Bahamas sequence as well. I, I had forgotten about that. I just remember the casino parts. But, anyways, yeah, the, some of the other early two thousands things are the fact that Le Chiffre is now shorting stocks which obviously was something that was going on and led to the financial crisis just a year later. Uh, but it's interesting that that was clearly something that was on people's minds, was this acknowledgement that there were some shady financial practices going on around the world. The presence of the Sony Vio in so many scenes. And now Sony Vio doesn't even exist, but it kind of dates it specifically yeah. to that Uh 2006 2007 period yeah but of course then the uh, the whole concept that this is a network of terrorists now as opposed to something to do with the with russia or the soviet union mm -hmm. and of course i don't know if you spotted but richard branson's i did one second i cameo did also i had dates it specifically to, to that time well i had to um pause it and look it up because i was like is that him that was <laughs> well <laughs> apparently he um he he didn't he didn't buy himself into the film, but he actually helped the production with. They needed a plane, I think, in Prague. Mm -hmm. um, and he kind of came to the rescue and lent them a plane. So in return, they they let him be in the film. Well, Bond, uh, the the Eon, Eon Films Bond has always been a big sponsorship event for as long as we can remember now, because obviously it is one of the most watched films in Britain. So 
sponsors want to get involved in that. Yeah, that makes um, sense. I think we should talk through the screenplay and just about story all the way through. Let's do it. It's a very strongly constructed screenplay. Um, as mentioned, it was written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade mm-hmm. based on their resume. If you were to just look at The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, and Johnny English, you might be thinking this is going to be a very different type of film. And they focused very carefully on trying to capture some of that spirit from Casino Royale as Bond as a character study. Paul Haggis, who had written Million Dollar Baby and Crash in the years preceding this, Mm -hmm. obviously a very accomplished screenwriter, he came on board mainly to rework the third act, the, the issues that were within the book in terms of that slowdown that takes mm. place towards the end, a whole third of the book being dedicated just to the romance between Bond and Vesper and yeah. how to essentially liven that up without betraying the story. Mm. Let's compare it to the book. The book opens in Media Res at the Casino Royale. Bond is on the mission. Uh-huh. And then the book fills in the details for us over those those first few chapters. Essentially, who Le Chiffre is, the involvement of MI6, who Bond is. Yeah, because the book doesn't open saying James Bond is a spy. It it introduces these details gradually. Yeah. And you have to figure out who he is. When this book was first released, you probably wouldn't know from the first chapter exactly mm. who James Bond is. But of course... A modern reader today has so much <laughs> nostalgia and baggage that they're taking in from having it's such a recognizable character. It's impossible to not yeah. already start uh, projecting some things into that that mm. character. Yeah, I, I thought it was a kind of a slow start because it does kind of slowly start feeding you the details of you know who he is, why he's there, and sort of the nature of this business. But it was it was interesting to to see the the early origins of, of who this character is. And again, this is when you start seeing the sort of perspective on the world a little bit, including, like we were talking about earlier, women. Um, and comparing it to the, the film, in the film it starts very action-packed. It starts off with James Bond becoming James Bond. Exactly. His, his yeah. double O, right? This is where he kills the, the two people for him to become an agent, which I thought, like I said earlier, was cleverly done. I like the whole back and forth flashback and he's at the office and he's telling him about the murder so he's going to be the number two i thought that was really cool it's Uh, notable the screenplay doesn't direct in any way it doesn't tell you what this bond looks like it doesn't tell you to expect him being any different to pierce brosnan and it doesn't tell you that this Mm. this opening sequence is going to be in black and white these are all artistic decisions that happen after the screenplay mm-hmm. is ready but they are things that add i think enormously to the enjoyment that that opening sequence in black and white and then the first drop of color is actually the blood coming down the screen and the with the iconic bond opening it it all works beautifully yeah no it's great because it kind of also alludes to the sort of older film noirs type of um movies that came before it which i thought was really cool and then we uh, this is where we jump into uganda i believe and we're introduced to sort of the background in which the plot is going to live in which is you know these terrorists and who are being funded by these men uh mr white i believe is and let is the um the banker 
right? And so I, I always felt like, you know, it, it kind of feels sort of slightly, style, not stylistic, but there's a formula where you introduce the baddies in a way, and then you then you go back to James Wan. But I think that was kind of cool because you, you again, you're you're being set in a, in a world, especially at the time, you know, sort of global events and all of that stuff. I think it kind of automatically grounds it because it's not someone trying to take over the world. There's something that's rooted in the threat of everyday life, I think. And then that goes into madagascar and i don't know i just really love that scene i think that was one of my favorite scenes stylistically it starts off action wise because i think that's what james bond is as opposed to in the book i did like the sort of slow rollout of you're trying to piece together what is happening yeah one thing that fleming did really well in the book is he introduces the case with the case file it's mm-hmm. it cuts away to london and shows m reading the case file they they have on the sheaf yeah and essentially a character called head of s who is actually vespa's boss mm-hmm. is the one who's trying to convince m to fund this operation and he's written up a case file and essentially what they've discovered is that the Chifre is a soviet agent he's been investing his boss's money in brothels in northern France. The French government has shut them all down and suddenly he's lost all that money and he needs to get the money back because the Russians are going to take him out unless he can get the money back. Mm. So that element of the character is the same. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the the film, it's updated. He's now shorting stocks and putting a phenomenal amount of money into the stock market and betting against the market. But that idea of the character is more or less the same. Just to give you a sense of who he is in the novel, Ian Fleming describes his physical appearance in a lot of detail, but I think Mm -hmm. it's actually the description of his habits in the book that really set him out as his character, because he actually sounds a lot like Bond. He, He has expensive but discreet taste. He has a large sexual appetite. He has a knowledge of accountancy and mathematics, and he's a fine gambler, and he loves driving fast cars. And in a way, he sounds almost like Bond. That's the scary thing about the Shifa as well, is there's this sense that they're the same kind of person, but they're just working for different sites. Mm. He is also described as being a bit grotesque, mm-hmm. but he's a stateless person. This is something that had happened after World War II. Lots of people, they didn't really know where they had come from. Mm-hmm. No documents had come across from the East, and... That's why he's known as Le Chiffre, which is the French for the cipher or the the figure, the number, essentially, Mm. because he claims he's just a number in a passport. The version they create for the the screen, of course, it's a little bit more iconic baddie. He's got the weeping weeping blood from his eye and uh, things like that. But that whole sense of him being a little bit similar to Bond, that obsession with winning, the, the competitiveness... Mm-hmm. And where is the difference in that? I think that ties into the speech you talked about with Matisse. Where they do have to argue about what is the difference. And ultimately, mm-hmm. they decide, Bond and Matisse, that there is something that is good and there is something that is bad. And it is yeah. evident when you when you really look at it. So Le Chief's plan is going to get a lot of people killed 
right from the beginning. And he's not going to care about it as long as he can make money. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about them being sort of almost the same person. But you're right. In the book, it does picture him like that. And uh, I guess in my head, I was just picturing the the Lashiv from the film when I was reading it. So I didn't, they look so different and feel so different. But you're right. There, There's some similarities as to, you know, like just because they're working for opposite sides, you know, where, where do you draw the line as to who's the better person or, you know, whose morals are more valid than the others if they're after the same objective, but just on opposite. That is very interesting. Something that I feel the that the film did well is, was that you have this villain i guess you could say but he's not the the ultimate antagonist in in the film you know it's not about defeating this villain i don't think that's what the book was i don't think that's what the film was i don't think there was this you know it didn't feel like a your classic tale in that way it was more more about the consequences of something that didn't go as it should have and the consequences of their all individual actions and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, he, he dies about two-thirds of the way in by, I guess, an even bigger villain. But that's not the point. You know, I think at the end, it's just, um, I like that shift where he's just kind of disposed. And we don't really get to know much more about him other than he was just another uh, person working his his game and he lost, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a chain of events. It's the it's the ball of string that's being unraveled. Mm-hmm. With Bond, it's not necessarily where you start, but it's where you end up. And mm-hmm. so, of course, with Casino Royale, the plan quite clearly was, barring any huge disastrous catastrophe at the box office, they knew they were going to continue this story. Uh, that would be the intention: is to set it up as it always had been, as a franchise that would have a film that would follow it. So the screenplay is also written in that sense. It's before Le Chiffre, there's other smaller, lower-level bad guys, but they will lead Bond to him. And then after him, that leads Bond and MI6 to the real villains. And then that can set you up for the next film. So it's also tr- the screenplay is also trying to do that in a way that if you were writing an original screenplay, uh, an original concept, you probably wouldn't want to tie up all your loose ends right That's right true. by the, the right. final page. Mm-hmm. So I guess just a personal question because I haven't seen Quantum of Solace in a while. So does does this movie tie into the next one in a way that's, I guess that's more connected than previous films? You know how they're very standalone. Does this one, do you think, has more of a link with Quantum of Solace? Yes. I actually wrote down a a good quote from uh, Chris Kilmeck in The Atlantic, which said, Largely reviled upon its release seven years ago, Quantum has aged well, especially if you watch it with a fresh memory of Casino Royale. They're really two halves of a 410-minute movie, the only time two Bond pictures have been so closely tied. Mm, Interesting. I chose to write that quote down because I thought I couldn't sum it up that well myself. Essentially, he pointed that out and I've just rewatched Quantum of Solace following Casino Royale and it, they really do feel like they belong together. They were written with that in mind. That's really cool. From a writing perspective as well, of course, 
you've got this scene in Uganda and it's a big set piece. You've got six pages of the script are dedicated to something that advances the story one step. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Bond could have basically got the bomber's phone, found the, the mysterious password on it, which is ellipsis, and that would be that. But of course, it, it needs six pages of action lines and explosions and parkour and everything that goes on, an embassy getting shot up. It's all, it's all part of it. Everyone knows this is how it's going to work in a Bond film. You need these big action sequences now. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it was creative the way it was done. I think we were just talking about how the previous four films, and I guess in general, they were kind of gearing more towards a bit to the absurd a little bit. You know, they're kind of flirting with some really crazy, like you mentioned the invisible car. I forgot about that. But yeah, like you're, this feels like they really drew it back. Essentially, you have one man chasing another man. And it, it, it is, it's exhilarating to watch. I was really Yeah, enjoying. there's some real vertigo in there. There's, yeah. there. there's leaps across buildings and climbing various construction sites and things like that. There's always a sense that at any moment they can fall and either one of them can die. And, and it just shows that, you know, when crafting an action sequence or, or something of suspense, you don't necessarily have to resort to anything that's huge and, you know, very big in scale. Like, you can have the same effect in something that's really much grounded. And I really did enjoy that from, the, from this version. And I think around this time in the book, what we're getting is a lot of I guess you could call it world building, even though it's it's set in the real world. You're getting to know a bit more about all of the people involved. There's just this slow kind of build up of background details, the sense of setting, the sense of character. Mm-hmm. And it's just not cinematic. It it just wouldn't work to take all of that time to build out all of those details that in the screenplay they can be dropped in quite easily, I think, through the conversations that Bond has with M, for example. Yeah, and, and also everything's much more visual. So a look uh, or a sound effect or, you know, all these different things. I think you get a real sense of the relationship between Vesper and um, James through the brief little interaction and exchange of lines between the two of them in the film without having to read all the, the thoughts that are going through his head. I think... I think Daniel Craig really pulls it off by showing instead of having to be, you know, told what he's feeling. Uh, I think, again, this is a visual medium and obviously they're two very different formats, which is why I feel like they were very true to the spirit of what the book was and bringing that into a much more visual form. Another thing that's important for them to do is to introduce the fact that these Two characters are expert gamblers. So mm-hmm. one of the early scenes is Le Chiffre on his yacht playing poker and oh, yeah. winning. Mm-hmm. You need to establish in the audience's mind for the later scenes that it's believable that this guy is an expert at poker. Yeah. So these are little minor details that it's easy to forget about while you're writing a screenplay, I think, is have I fully established earlier on something that looks like an irrelevant detail, but actually turns out to be central to the premise of the story. And then we actually get 
a counterpart to that when Bond arrives in the Bahamas, he also plays and wins at poker. So it's set up in the audience's mind. Yeah. When we get to Montenegro, these two guys are both good gamblers. Yeah. I mean, it's all about setting up the uh, leaving breadcrumbs for the audience. I think that's what makes a really good story satisfying. It's, you know, you're setting something up and you don't have to uh, be so obvious about what you're setting up. I think the setups that are most satisfying is that it feels true to the moment in which they're being set up. It doesn't feel like a setup, but you are building off from like a character or like a part of a story in the scene and then paying it off later. I think it's almost like a good joke. You know, you have your setup and your payoff. And I think, yeah, the, the, the film did a really good job at doing that. And also setting up character traits of who this guy is. I think showing how he is with women, you know, you have that whole sequence in the Bahamas where the guy he's after, you know, he ends up, you know, uh, getting intimate with his wife and, and, you know, she's clearly attracted to him. And But you start to see sort of his behavior and just by his interaction with her, like how he feels towards women. And then you start setting up that part of his character and then you see sort of how he is later on in the film and how something shifted. I think if we hadn't seen that at the beginning of the film. Yeah, the, the, the cold-heartedness way... earlier on. Yeah. Yeah, you contrast that with Vesper and his romance later on. It feels like it has more weight because we've seen mm-hmm. what he was before and now we see how he is now. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a plot setup that makes it satisfying. Actually, it, more often than not, it's a character setup as well. Early on in the film, we also have that scene right before he goes to the Bahamas where he breaks into M's house. And Mm -hmm. for the longest time, especially the way M was as a character in Fleming's books and also how he'd been throughout the films from the 60s up until the 90s, was a bureaucrat, essentially. The guy behind the desk who sends Bond off on the missions and isn't particularly interested in the details. It just matters that it Mm. gets done. But there's always this understanding that Bond is going to play by the rules and that's his boss. And this new Daniel Craig Bond comes along. And it's not just disobeying M. It's breaking into M's house, finding out what her real name is. uh, To which she says, if you you say one more syllable, I'll have you killed. And it's brilliant because (laughs) the, the power struggle is there. She does have the power over him. But he is pushing and pushing the boundaries and we are reminded that he is a brand new agent and he's doing this kind of stuff. And it creates this very loving connection between the characters that they, that there's sometimes that, that sense of that you can show love in many different ways. And mm-hmm. I think in this reboot, it's M is Bond's surrogate mother figure, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he, gets to act like a naughty child disobeying her and that will all come together very nicely in Skyfall where you really mm. get the culmination of that mother-son relationship. So it's it's very well set up, I think, to, mm. to do that and I think that really gets to the heart of what the reboot was trying to do with the, the new Bond character. So you think with this reboot, um, first of all, I didn't ask you before, but have you seen all the films? for like all the James Bond films, at one point or another, have you seen all of them? Oh, I haven't seen all the films, sorry. No, I've seen all of the Daniel Craig films. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, no, I mean... No, I haven't seen every Bond film. Okay, gotcha. I've seen Uh, most of them, I would think. 
Okay, well, points. because my question was if whether you, you whether you feel that these Daniel Craig films are more interconnected than like all the you know um, Sean Connery ones and all the uh, Pierce Brosnan films, like do you feel like this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also story? ties into the fact that film is no longer an experience you can only get in the cinema. When Goldfinger came out in 1964. Mm-hmm. the cinemas were open 24 hours a day showing it really but you could never see it. the problem was you wouldn't see it again you you saw it in 1964 that was when you saw it and you couldn't remember you couldn't go back and compare it to dr no and from Ru- russia with right because there was no dvds or there wasn't right. and obviously these films are also made with that understanding that now you can have and in fact, regularly it does happen that there will be a Bond marathon on television or that people will buy a box set of all the films and they'll watch them in a row. That makes and sense. And there's definitely more of an expectation, even in film, even in cinema, because mm-hmm. let alone television, where it's now you don't want to get something wrong week to week because people are watching episodes back to back. Even in cinema now, you have to be aware that if you're going to do a sequel, it needs to make sense compared to the previous film. Whereas mm-hmm. it's, I think that's something they just completely disregarded in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. You're right. That's interesting that back in the day, you know, you you couldn't rewatch a film unless it was, I mean, there was, there was instances where they would reissue a film like a few years down the line. I know that happened, but that's an interesting time. I did do a little bit of research into, because I saw that this was the third sort of um, iteration of Casino Royale. I was like, there was two more. (laughs) So apparently the first one was a TV movie of sorts, like a 50-minute TV movie that it wasn't even James Bond. It was Jimmy something. It was American. Yeah, it was an American (laughs) agent. That was so funny. Uh, So there was that one. I believe that adaptation upset Fleming a lot. I'm sure it did. I mean, it changed the whole thing. But I guess the story was more or less fairly also kind of faithful to the book to an extent. And then the second one was actually a a bit of a spoof in like the late 60s with Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different actors playing James Bond, which I thought that was, this is the non-Eon, one of the ones that are not part of the canon James Bond, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah. But I thought that was an interesting way of using that material for that for that film. And Woody Allen being a James Bond, I thought that was very interesting. I haven't seen the film. Well, the, there's um, the spoofs actually happened very quickly. We think of our our generation of spoofs and the fact that there were a load of spy films all around the same time that were basically saying that genre was dead. Uh, Spy Kids, starring Frankie Muniz, was another example aside from Johnny English and um, Austin Powers. Spy Kids with the little, the, the 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 brother and the sister. Yeah, yeah, with Alan Cumming as the yeah. I don't <laughs> so you know there was already this sense that you know spy movies are done with, and um, weirdly in the sixties there was a big string of parody movies as well, including that Casino Royale parody, which. Obviously, wasn't a classic and didn't go down in history, but I think the first carry on spoof of it called Carry On Spying came out in 1964. So it was already just a couple of years after Dr. No, they were already parodying this 
this concept is ridiculous. And so there's always been that sense. Uh, I think it was, I think it might have been Roger Moore who said this, that with Bond films, you have to invite the audience to be laughing with you. Otherwise, they'll be laughing at you. And I thought that was put quite well. Mm. Essentially, or you can go this way with the, the Casino Royale way is basically this isn't a laughing matter anymore because we're going to really get to the heart of the characters and talk about what motivates them and what pain they need to go through to in mm -hmm. order to be the characters that they are. I think you had to pick one of those two approaches. And clearly the approach of the ridiculous uh, over-the-top spectacle was on its way out. Yeah, yeah, that's true. My favorite, by the way, is... um. Austin Powers. Yeah, we'll do one of those one day as well. <laughs> Can we please? Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah, basically, let's just finish up the setup from mm -hmm. the screenplay. The Bahamas story, again, it's... I think the Bahamas story does reveal a lot more character of Bond, but essentially, plot-wise, it gets him onto the trail of following this Dimitrios guy, follows him to Miami, and... Then there's the second big showpiece, essentially, the big action sequence, which is the mm. Bond is seconds behind the guy who's going to carry out this attack on... In the screenplay, it's described as a Boeing, and they actually did use a Boeing plane, but I think they called it Skyfleet in the film. That was Essentially, huge. maybe just to not associate... I, I can imagine that airlines... Any airline post 9-11 wouldn't want to be associated with anything uh, to do with planes exploding. So they made up a, a name, Skyfleet, essentially. And yeah. there's going to be this this uh, new plane unveiled that day. Of course, Le Chiffre has been betting against it in the stock market against Skyfleet and stands to make a lot of money if this plane explodes at Miami Airport. But from a reading the screenplay perspective, it's kind of, this is going to be more exciting on screen. You have to really wait for the <laughs> the cars to be crashing and the plane to almost be hitting. Mm. There's, you know, they drive underneath a plane that's trying to land and stuff like that. It When you're trying to read it, it's just a bit laborious. You're just going through all right. this, like, endless, okay, then Bond kicks the gun and out of his hand and they, then he chokes him and, you know, it's it just does get a little i agree nonetheless i felt the way they described the action was surprisingly very detailed um i think it is my understanding that a lot of these big budget films they don't necessarily put a lot of um detail in the script because they actually have to do a lot of pre-visualization so they have all these like software where they actually storyboard you know the action because that has to be very specific because you know they're spending all this money on it so usually the script doesn't go through such a, a very um detailed description of the action itself going back to the reason why it doesn't feel so exciting i think also is because the stakes are not personal at the end of the day you that's have, true yeah. you, this, the stakes is like okay so if this goes down bad then that just means you know that there's no personal stake in it for james bond except we are rooting for him we want him obviously to put a stop to it but th there's no sense of threat to something you've invested in emotionally and i think the time that it didn't feel like it was such work to read through the action sequences was at the very end when they're yeah, in venice you're right. yeah. because at that point the stakes are high suddenly we do care what happens to 
to Vesper. We, ha- we, 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 we care about their relationship. We care about what happened. You know, all of a sudden, that's when the action feels, I think, exciting to read because you, 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 you want to know what, what's going to happen. Yeah. You're right. Actually, in the screenplay, the character who he's chasing after has a name and his name is Carlos. We don't know who that character's name is on, on the screen. We, do, we don't care. He's just, that's the bad guy. Bond's got to go get him. There is yeah. no personal involvement. I, th- that's, I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there. That's exactly why those sequences are not that engaging. It's because all they are are essentially an excuse to blow up a load of vehicles. And, yeah. and it is, yes, it is part of the appeal of the Bond films, but you are looking for something more. You are looking for, maybe this is good advice, essentially for someone who is working on some action sequences right now. It's just to think through, can I introduce a little bit more of a personal stake in, in my action sequences? Or is it just my heroes chasing and fighting off a load of bad guys? Mm. Because pretty much after this point, after the Miami scene, I would say Casino Royale has you entirely invested in what happens to all of the characters. Yeah. And I think the the difference between... So there's like a whole spectrum, I feel, of action sequences in, in films. At one end of the spectrum, you have something like Transformers, where you have a bunch of robots fighting each other and you really don't care about the explosions or anything like that i think this the early sequences in this film i think kind of fall in the middle for me because even though the stakes are not that personal and we're starting to get to know who james bond is this james bond i did care about him succeeding because of his dynamic with m at the beginning of the film you already know that he's on shaky ground and one more mistake and he's so there's that element that kind of hooks you into it so at least there's a bit i think the screenwriters were really wise in at least adding that element of stake for the character so it's not just him on a mission like you feel like he really needs to prove himself because he kind of screwed up a little bit but it's still not by the end of the film where it's fully personal so you're seeing the progress of of what the stakes are which i thought was really cool yeah that's a fair point Essentially, after this as well, you do have M come to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go to the Bahamas together to discover that Demetrius, his wife, has been drowned. Mm-hmm. And we get to see how little Bond cares about it, essentially. And the fact M is concerned, she asks, did you reveal anything? Did you reveal your name? And Bond says no, and of course he did. And Bond, this comes up again at the casino, the Bond introduces himself as James Bond for his reservation, even though he's got a, a cover name. And Vesper comments on how reckless he is and that he's giving that away to the chief. They are playing this game of wits against each other. And that was an insightful part of the screenplay, I think, is that the, the writers were all aware that every action taken by Bond is essentially a message to his enemies stating what kind of person they're up against. And everything they do back to him is the same. It's essentially pointing out the lengths to which they're going to go to win. And I, that dynamic is quite fun as well. That, that introduces mm. some, some more of a personal element, I think, into the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, like you were saying, it's like a 
sort of a telepathic battle that they're having. They're not in the room for this battle, but yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And it kind of just goes with the whole nature of poker. You know, there's there that's the setting, and I think it kind of plays into that in the film, which is very appropriate. And I really did enjoy all those scenes where they first come in and and actually Vesper scenes with uh, her introduction in the train. I thought that whole yeah, scene was really well written. I thought the it introduced the characters extremely well. Well, I mean, we knew James Bond at this point, but like how he reacts to her, I thought was very telling where we feel that he's obviously taken back a little bit. You know, it's almost like he's met his match. Definitely. So up until this point, there's no real literary precedent for all of the stuff we've seen in the screenplay so far. Right. Essentially, the book tells us this is who Le Chiffre is. He's lost all his money and he's going to gamble and try and win it all back in this high stakes last chance game to do so. But we already start at that point in the book. The screenplay's already been going on for, I guess, about 40-something pages by this point. It's, it's definitely at least 40 minutes on screen in the final film yeah. before we get to this point. But this is really where the heart of Casino Royale begins. In the book, Matisse introduces Vesper to Bond. They, they all meet together at the hotel. Matisse, I believe, is posing as a radio salesman. Uh, he's he's selling a, a new radio to mm-hmm. to James Bond. He's he's like a traveling salesman, essentially, is his cover, and that Vesper is essentially his assistant. And so they all meet together, and Bond is in, intrigued by this very quiet woman who's strikingly beautiful, but doesn't really give away anything of herself. And so he's very intrigued to invite her to dinner and get to know her. While we get in we get a 21st century woman in in the screenplay and she's immediately his match she is mm-hmm. just as witty as him she's just as intelligent she's just as brazen and willing to go there and they they're con- they're playing this game and it's so fun these are the kind of characters that you love for dialogue essentially are uh, the characters that take each other on and meet each other full force in dialogue there's no shyness and looking at the floor here this is head-on collision and both characters laying their cards on the table and trying to essentially figure out who the other one is yeah and and i think it was really great screenwriting because through them kind of trying to figure each other out you as the audience are learning a little bit more about them so i think that's also very smart of the writers to do like all of a sudden we know that james bond's a he's an orphan and and then she was too. And, and you're starting to see um, small little character traits, I think. And how that's obviously going to... It's almost like the perfect storm. One thing that's also worth thinking about as well is that with these scenes, both in the book and uh, in the film, mm-hmm. it's worth thinking about Vespa in terms of knowing who she is by the end and then going back and rereading and seeing how she's introduced and perhaps understanding different giveaways or little minor character details that are kind of hidden in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're certainly there, I do think, in the screenplay as well. Some some unusual different aspects to her character that perhaps are explained by the end of the film. Yeah, she's not a total enigma because she's definitely playing a part, but it's like those little cracks, I think. And... 
I hadn't seen the film in a, in a while. So and then I read the book first. So it kind of came as a bit of a surprise because I had forgotten that she, you know, she had a whole separate agenda. Reading the book, I was like, wait a second. Like the minute that towards the end of the film where she's getting a little paranoid and stuff, I started remembering, oh, wait a second. She isn't who, who we thought she was. And, and then I remembered from for the film as well. Like it's not so much that she has to explain herself or we as the audience have to be explained to why she did what she did we get very to the point and we get it and i think the complexity comes from the the moment she spent with james bond and us the audience witnessing the the growth of the relationship because even though plot wise we're there in the casino because they have their mission and, and you know these things that need to be done you know by effect we're also seeing this blossoming of a relationship between the two of them and we don't realize that's really happening because our clear focus, the drama is with these high stakes, you know, that are being played out at this poker game. But by default, that's what's happening. And then I think that's what makes the last act so impactful because it's all been cooking. And then then we get this other experience, which is James Bond falling in love. Yeah, this this is definitely where the heart of the Casino Royale part of the story really mm-hmm. comes in. So we've got... Bond's introduction to Vespa. We also start to understand a little bit of what's at stake, who the players are, mm-hmm. not just literally uh, players as in card players, but also Matisse and the other people who are involved. And the, the fact that it's very evident that all around the casino, everyone's aware that something shady is probably going on, but so much money is involved that it's encouraged and it's encouraged in France in the book and it's encouraged in Montenegro in the film as well. One thing that Fleming does is he takes time to explain the rules of Baccarat, which is the game they play. I learned a lot reading the book. Yeah. And it it sounds like a very fun game (laughs) as well, but obviously it's updated to be poker, uh, Texas Hold'em poker in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that really changes anything because it's kind of that whole sense of how, you know, sports movies are in some way slightly interchangeable because audiences fixate on the goal, not the method of winning. That's something that's relevant in real life with the, for the players, playing. you know, but yeah. mm-hmm. we get what's happening. Texas Hold'em, we know if a player's won or lost. The important thing, I think, was to write in the concept of bluffing, just make the audience aware. And Bond puts that very nicely in his conversation with Vesper, which is, you may have heard that, in poker, you don't play your hands, you play the man across from you. Mm-hmm. I think that's a bit that's important to get across to the audience through that dialogue, is that you're not necessarily interested in the cards. You're interested in the game of wits. You're interested in the secret agent trying to outsmart the mastermind criminal. Yeah, and I think uh, it's also, okay, speaking for you know the the crafting of a screenplay which relates to ultimately it's going to be very visual it's all about the visual language as well you know who are you who are we looking at when this is happening like who are we cutting to you know the reactions of the characters that's where the story is being unfolded not necessarily the actual game but i thought it was really cool that the the script very much followed the dynamic of the book in terms of the the game the sort of I guess the flow of it, you know, they're, you know, first 
Bond has the upper hand, then the Shiver has the upper hand, and then someone tries to kill Bond, but then he comes back. The the sequence of events, even though they happen slightly differently, it's still very much within the spirit of the book, which I really enjoyed. How and it, it was as I in the book, it was really cool how he was almost killed with um someone pointing a gun to his backbone or something. Yeah, know, they've gonna... snuck a gun into the casino and hidden it in a cane. Yeah. Um, and in it's, the it's not very cinematic, unfortunately. No, uh, because but, he essentially breaks his chair and causes a scene, but the guy runs away. And yeah, it, it it doesn't fit with this. You know, this guy has just been avoiding uh, a plane from exploding by driving a truck around an airport and stuff like that. Of course, it right. wouldn't be that thrilling to see it on screen. Just it, him falling yeah. off his chair. Even though visually, I did see it in my head quite well that scene of him doing that thing with the chair they wouldn't have changed it in the 60s that's kind of how i see it yeah but yeah this this version of it it follows that roller coaster the Mm -hmm. roller coaster is in the game it's in the money one of the things that fleming can do really well that can't be done on screen is he tells us the truth behind the bluffs and he tells us the chief's actually only got 10 million francs left but Bond thinks he's got 20 million. And there's this whole thing where they're trying to, they can't know what their reserves are. But what does follow is that Bond makes a stupid blunder. He gets too sure of himself and he bets everything and loses everything. So that's an important thing to happen story-wise is we do need to feel that all is lost. I think that works very effectively. With Vespa, though, the screenplay found room to include a bit more, and that's Vespa's freakout, essentially. Um, Mm. It's probably the most tender moment in the entire Mm. film. I think it's it's very important. They describe it in the screenplay as them sitting under the warm rain of the shower. This is the scene where Bond has just fought off the two bad guys from Uganda who we saw at the beginning of the film, and he's killed them both. And it's Vespa who can't recover from this, that she's sat clothed in the shower because she can't wash all the blood off her hands, and he goes and sits down with her. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different kind of Bond to the one we're used to. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a Bond who's suddenly coming to terms with the fact that he might be emotionally detached about killing but other people are not. Mm. Has to come to terms with that and also ask himself, why does he love someone like that? Like, is is there something wrong with him? Because she's showing him that. I, I really enjoy that part of the film. But aside from that, yes, I think after this point, it really follows those key story points from Fleming, which are Bond risks everything and loses. Uh, the CIA bail him out. In the screenplay, they don't use Leiter as uh, Felix Leiter's name. He's got another name in the screenplay, but I guess they sorted out whatever legal issue they had there. or Maybe they were trying to do something different. but They were trying to do something different, and they chose to go back to that character. Either way, it's the CIA that bails Bond out yeah. and gives him the extra funds to continue gambling, Yeah, which is quite fun. And then, of course, there's the poisoning, which is fantastic i think it's mm-hmm. that's a great moment in the, the film because the stakes are personal as you mentioned 
is the feeling that is our main character going to die? There's always that tension. Mm. With these kind of films, it's always hard to feel like your main character is ever really in any peril. Mm. And there's just something about watching someone slowly dying from poison miles away from a hospital that is always going to be tense, even mm. if you think they'll still pull through. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a human thing, I think. But going back briefly to that, that scene you mentioned in the shower, I think that was that's a great character moment that... Again, we've had all this setup of who he is, of the type of person that he is, and then you start seeing a slight shift in his perspective, which I thought was very brilliantly done. But yeah, it, it more or less does follow the book. But there is one moment in the film towards the end where they really built the suspense in a very... It's when he finally does win because the filmmakers and the screenwriters actually reveal um, the Sheev's cards. You know, so then they reveal everyone's except James. So at that point, it really does build a suspense for the audience because we are all... We don't know if he's bluffing himself. Right. Now we're awaiting him, you know. Um, So I thought that was really cool. That's a good effect in in, in a sort of high-stakes, suspenseful scene like that where you're with... It's what you're withholding in terms of narrative. The thing you're withholding from the audience is what's making it suspenseful. With any kind of thriller when you're writing as well, it's so important to be really clear on who knows what at any one time. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I think this is something we saw when we were looking at Knives Out recently as well for the, mm-hmm. the Oscars episode. But who knows what? It's so critical that Bond figures out Le Chief has a tell where he will start to weep blood just slightly out of his eye and his eye will twitch and he uses a finger to cover his eye and he goes over to the bar and he tells Vesper and he tells Matisse Mm. about this tell. And it's so critical that he does this, not that he tells Vesper or not that he tells Matisse, but the fact that he tells both of them because that's the whole heart of act three. It was necessary to set that up is Who can he trust? He told them something because he was reckless. He was arrogant. He thought they were both on his side. And he told them this information, which will lead to his downfall and lead to him losing all of the money at that critical moment because Mashif has found out that Bond knows his tale and uses that to trick him. Mm -hmm. And it's just so critical. And it would, again, it would be easy to forget this. It would be easy to not include this. And just kind of have, I guess, the the risk is to make it a coincidence or to make it that Le Chief outwitted him by figuring out that he knows what his tell is and he changed it. No, it needs to be a betrayal. It needs to be someone close to Bond doing that betrayal. And in order for that to be believable, you do need a scene that seemingly is a little bit irrelevant. You know, it's just oh, Bond goes over to the bar, makes a joke about... Um, not knowing what to name his drink, uh, which is, there's a few in-jokes from the book the about this. Um, Actually, I prefer the book. The in, book he... In terms, because yeah. he's been working on it for a while. Mm-hmm. So this is his drink. He's created yeah. this drink and he just needs a name. In the film, I think he just kind of comes up with it in the in the moment and he just realizes how good that is and then he decides to name it after Vesper. But... In the book, I, I like the idea that he's been working on this drink for a while. 
and it's his drink. There's a great uh, one of the other things that just sums up the reboot in one beautiful line of dialogue is the most iconic line in all of James Bond film history is of course shaken not stirred the way he orders his martini and after he's lost all of the money in that moment where we think all is lost the barman asks him shaken or stirred and he says do i look like i give a damn and that is a brilliant piece of dialogue because the old bond cared deeply about whether it was shaken or stirred the new daniel craig version of bond doesn't give a damn he a drinks a drink that's a new character that's a reboot and it's mm. funny because it's such a minor detail but because it's true to the moment yeah exactly it's yeah. true to the moment and it just i think it just sums up everything yeah. this is a new bond <laughs> <clears throat> after this i think james bond wins obviously mm-hmm. so we feel like it's all tied up right you right. know he's won what else same thing won? happens in the book he feels yep. like he's won and mm-hmm. he gets complacent mm-hmm. well he gets yeah he 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 feels confident now that that everything's worked out and we have a very lovely scene between um him and vesper in, in the film and um actually this is very similar to the book as well where she gets a message from matisse and she she leaves and yeah it's just a handwritten message for the times and yeah in the film it's a text yeah and and you know james kind of uh takes him a a little bit but you know he eventually does see that this is not something doesn't add up no and it's actually explained a little better in the book i think yeah it works fine on screen but i did like that part of the book where bond is sitting around and fleming's just going into his head and suddenly it just dawns on him this isn't how my friend Rene Matisse works. He, right. he would come in and join us. Why would he send a message from outside? We follow his dream of thoughts. Yeah. So we follow that, and then suddenly it's just get up, run out, and just in time to see, of course, that Vespa has disappeared. Mm-hmm. She's been taken, and, and the same thing in the film. And uh, there's a quick little car chase. Again, this time the stakes are a little bit higher. And... In the book, I think they put some spikes on the road, and then like he kind yeah, of yeah, very classic uh, kind of nineteen fifties, sixties kind of thing. You yeah, know, d- spikes on the road, and then and then this one, I thought that was a very cool visual of actually putting her on the road. Yeah, I thought that was very and powerful. that could have been cheesy. And there's just something about the way it's shot where you get a split second to recognize that it's her. You see him turn the steering wheel and then his whole car just is just rolled yeah. all the way down the road yeah. it it looks painful and it also the fact it's a split second decision i think that again gets into the heart of character it's what does a character do under the most extreme pressure bond turns within a second within like the millisecond of his eyes registering that she's in the road mm. he, he manages to turn the steering wheel there's mm. something about that in the character, I think, just this. No, um, yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, the, the fact he'll sacrifice himself, essentially. Right. He, yeah. It says everything with saying nothing in terms of dialogue. It's all very... It's, um again, I think good writing in terms of scripts is show, do not tell. If you can reveal something about your character by showing them doing action, it's always going to register, I feel, more much more powerfully on film because, again, it's all very visual. 
And and then this is when we get into uh, the most torturous part of the film. Yeah, and that was why they really had, I suppose they, by they I mean the Eon films, uh, the Bond franchise had always struggled with the idea of adapting Casino Royale was because of this troubling torture sequence. We're now in the early 2000s. We've seen very graphic violence on screen. It's become a regular staple of, <laughs> of theater, I suppose, of, yeah, of theaters. It's, it's something you should expect, I think. Um, this is years after Reservoir Dogs, uh, which would be a, an equivalent, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're... We're accustomed to seeing this, but yeah. in the 60s, in the 70s, were they going to write a screenplay with this kind of scene in it? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But it's highly effective. And the screenwriters have a lot of fun with it as well. Because again, it shows the kind of character that Bond is. And this is he's able to go to what he thinks is his grave with a smile on his face and the ability to frustrate his enemy all the way through mm. because that's kind of all you've got left yeah. you're a, you're naked and tied to a chair what do you have left the last thing you have left is to not give in it's to not concede and not let the bad guy win despite the pain that will be yeah the horrendously painful end that is in store for you yeah, no, that was that's a very tough scene to to watch for sure, and I, and and it's interesting you talking about violence and all this graphic stuff, but essentially we're not seeing anything. You know, there's no real blood. No, we're feeling it through. Yes. Yeah, careful cuts and sound and everything. Yeah, piecing it all together, it's 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 powerful how you can create something so violent out of these different things and not show anything, but play on your your sort of mind and your emotions and but i i think it it does reveal everything about him in a way at least the type of agent that he is you know the willpower that he has and 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 sort of how he does uh revel in sort of the 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 fact that he's not telling them anything and the fact that you know he's kind of laughing i think that the moment when he starts laughing is a bit telling to sort of his psychology a bit too Mm -hmm. you know which i thought was really interesting but yeah, this is, I think the only moment where he was close to giving anything was when he heard Vesper screams. And obviously, the, had he used Vesper as a, maybe he would have given in. I don't know. Yeah, in the book as well, it's, a, it's very graphic. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, his torture lasts an hour. It's mm-hmm. described by Fleming. These are things that Fleming was inspired by stories he had heard from his time in naval intelligence in the 40s during World War II, he'd heard about this kind of stuff. He'd heard about what people went through in order to keep secrets. And he wanted to dramatize that, and he wanted to put his main character in that position. And it just, again, the audience expectations have constantly undermined the Bond character in a way because of the way he's been portrayed as this playboy for whom everything goes right all of the time and all Mm. the women throw themselves at him it was missing out on that aspect of the character of that sheer determination that willingness to suffer enormously for this larger mission something that kind of got disguised and lost over 
over the course of the the Bond character history. And it's brilliant that they brought that back into the character through Casino Royale. Yeah, they really put put him through the ringer. Like, you know, he's he's definitely earned his his status as James Bond, you know, this agent. Yeah, this is where the um the shift happens in terms of I think not just the plot, all of a sudden, you know, your your main villain is being killed by someone else, but all of a sudden tone wise, the film shifts. I remember watching the film and thinking the first time I watched it, like, oh, this is gonna lead to like the the finale the the climax and instead it's like it's almost like it's going like up up and then it just kind of goes back down in terms of um pacing you know because mm-hmm. all of a sudden we go back into more of uh the repercussions of what just happened and then the evolution of something else happening which is the the relationship between vesper and james bond um it is how fleming ended that scene in the book mm-hmm. again it it's not bond who gets out of it he probably would have died had it not been for this mysterious person coming in and killing Le Chief. Mm-hmm. This is something that is a setup for future stories. In the book, he's branded, essentially. He has mm, these yeah, yeah. this letter carved onto his skin mm-hmm. by the assassin, which is the, the Russian letter for sh, essentially, S-H, and... This stands for Shmursh, which is this secretive organization that in the film series is they didn't actually have the legal rights to use Spectre at this time. So it is Spectre, but it's not Spectre because they couldn't legally say that. So it's what we call Quantum, I guess, in (laughs) Quantum of Solace. And then I think by Skyfall, they had the rights to use the word Spectre again. Interesting. Either way, it's not really that important, but there's going to be a bigger terrorist organization out there, and Le Chiffre is just nothing, essentially. But he was about to kill Bond, and that's something that Bond also has to kind of live with, is mm. the sense that there are genuine stakes to the the way he's operating. The fact he is so far away from any kind of backup, and he knows that the mistake was... In his mind, at least, because obviously this gets changed by the ending. But the mistake is that for the for what he's thinking about for most right up until the end of the conclusion is that he thinks that Vesper was tricked. And if he could have found a way to avert Vesper getting tricked, none of this would have happened. But it does change the whole kind of dynamic of that idea that Bond is always the one who... The most famous example, of course, is Bond being strapped to this kind of table with a laser slowly going up between his legs. It's going to saw him in two in one of the the films from the 60s. You know, this Mm -hmm. sense that Bond always finds a way out at the last second. And this is not that Bond. And that's not the way Ian Fleming created Bond. He created him as someone who got a second chance at life by the skin of his teeth. Someone saved him at the last minute because he's meant to be dead. And that's something that I think if you don't look at it in those terms, the ending doesn't have the same significance. Mm-hmm. And also that, you know, kind of who enabled that to happen as well mm-hmm. adds to the, I think, the the, the love story it makes it a bit mo- much more impactful and tragic at the same time. 
I think we can very briefly talk about the ending. Okay. The the romance part of it. Mm-hmm. It's Bond recovering in the hospital, getting close to Vesper. Mm. And there's the screenplay is written very nicely, I think, in terms of also keeping the main plot moving forward, whereas the Ian Fleming's book really feels almost directionless towards the end. You feel like it's just right. going on and on about it's it's coming to this inevitable conclusion, which is going to be this love story. Bond is going to give up everything, propose to Vesper, marry her, and and quit. Whereas the ending that we get in the screenplay is a little different because we we do see what Vesper's up to, mm-hmm. even though it only makes sense in retrospect. But we do see the little actions she takes where she is clearly stealing all the money off him right. and going to hand it over to the organization that Mr. White's a part of. And also, I think... Uh, th- they kind of mirror each other, the book and the script as well, in terms of, um, you know, he did give it up in, in the film. In the book, he was about to give it up. And, and in the film, he actually does send M the email or whatever that yeah, was and says, like, yeah. effective immediately, I'm done. Which, again, that, sh- that just shows you how much he cares and compared to the person he was at the beginning of the film, you you see that seismic shift in in his perspective and how he feels towards her. And you're right. It it does feel in the book like it's turning into another book, essentially. And and here it it almost feels like you know that's not the end. You know, as a film as a as a film goer, you're like, well, something's gonna happen for sure. Which kind of gives those scenes a bit of a you know, kind of like a bittersweet. You're enjoying them for that moment because you know they're not gonna they're not going to last very long and we don't know exactly what's going to happen but there's also a cinematic precedent to this as well which was the the one film that George Lazenby was in as James Bond he did get married and she got killed at the end so there's always that feeling I think for an audience that doesn't really know where this story is going there's that feeling that maybe that's what's going to happen Bond falls in love and Mm. the terrorists get her right before they're about to be happy. So the, mm. that's maybe what you might be fearing might will happen, I think, when you don't right. know ex- anything about what's going to, to go on at the ending. Yeah. But betrayal, that doesn't seem believable, I suppose. No, because you see from her side, you see all the emotion that she's kind of pouring into it. And, and it was real to an extent. That's what makes the betrayal a whole lot more complicated is that she had all these emotions invested and they were they were probably true and so it wasn't just like a cold-blooded complete betrayal i think there was a lot of gray in there which complicates the whole situation Oh, absolutely yeah she's not a an evil character by Mm -hmm. any means um in both the book and the film she's compromised by her real love affair the her boyfriend in the book it's a polish man mm-hmm. so that's linking into the cold war scenario poland being part of the communist bloc for a 21st century story he's he's algerian french algerian so the problem is that in in retrospect you look back at all these different details about the character bond 
noticing she's got a necklace that she doesn't know everything about. So he thinks, well, a boyfriend's bought you that. And it, it all kind of adds up by the end. That's something that we kind of crave, I think, as an audience is for all the loose ends to be tied up. Mm-hmm. But the betrayal is still just as strong. And Paul Haggis is the one who essentially requested this rewrite uh, when he was brought on to the project. That's what he thought needed to change in the screenplay was this missing third act. And arguably, Ian Fleming doesn't have this third act. It does become a romance novel. And it's a, a bit of a Romeo and Juliet style romance because she kills herself. Mm-hmm. And she leaves a note, a letter, essentially, to Bond, explaining everything and laying out a reasoning for all of her actions, which is something we don't get in in the film. And it's mm. better that way, I think, yep. is, is that it's, it's up to Bond to figure out what she did and why. And with his jaded worldview, he's never going to figure, figure it out exactly. It's actually M that kind of is distanced enough from the situation to really be able to figure out what happened yeah and you kind of see how uh in the book it's described like he's not going to he's not going to really face it he's just going to bury it until later it'll resurface at one point which i thought that was a really interesting character trait too that he does that with probably all the emotional stuff that happens to him and then in the in the film version you have the act the acting obviously selling that you know um where even M kind of, she's like, do you need more time? You know, she even senses that maybe this time he doesn't, maybe he has become emotionally attached to which he responds. Well, you know, why do I need more time? The bitch is dead. Yep. Which I thought, <laughs> I mean, it's such a funny line. I think that's a, it's, a, it's, it's a so telling. Of, line because <laughs> it comes from a completely different place that the book's version of that line, because he does use the, the, well, yeah, bitch as well. And the book ends in But that. it comes from that more misogynistic bond. And it's, I've been proven right. My belief from the beginning was women shouldn't get involved in espionage. And look, lo and behold, I was right. And it's not that kind of line in the screenplay. In the screenplay, it's he's saying it because he doesn't want to admit that he really loved her. And that's what you do when you close yourself off. You turn the other person into something that isn't human. It's yeah. She was a bitch the whole time, and even she, and even she tells him like you know, well, you must know that obviously she she did save your life. You know, I think she kind of rebuffed him a little bit. The heart of the whole origin story, I think, is in that last conversation with them and Bond because yeah, well, one of my absolute favorite lines of the entire screenplay is it says of M she knows she's just sacrificed a man to create a spy and for the briefest of moments not necessarily happy with herself it's it's this acknowledgement the whole thing the whole origin story is you can't be James Bond and fall in love with someone and want to go off and travel the world and live off your bank account there's no happy ending for Bond. To be the secret agent, he has to be emotionally detached. He has to trust nobody ever again. And we see that, and that's why he's so cruel to Matisse as well, is that even though we 
kind of know by this point that Matisse was not the one who betrayed him. He insists that MI6 continue interrogating him because he doesn't trust him anymore. And that's what M says, then you've learned your lesson too. Yeah, yeah. I thought that whole, I, I agree. I think that whole moment really kind of summarizes what that whole thing was about in terms of him and his uh, his place at MI6 and like the sort of launching of what he from now on has to do. You know, so it was a bit of a training course, but it's not really training, but you know, he he learned his lesson. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a, a, a and then eventually he does I love the last scene where he's um he finally does find Mr. White cuz she leaves the cell phone and that was like sort of the trace that that leads him to Mr. White and I thought that was such a perfect end to to this reboot of him uttering those James Bond you know? Yeah, and it's the promise of more. It's the mm-hmm. pro- it's the rebirth is complete, and it's the promise that this is going to continue now. Yeah, yeah. He's essentially kind of reminds me of um, Batman Begins, which, funnily enough, was released the year before, which was also a reboot after four films that were beginning to be a little bit too too fantasy, too cartoonish. I guess would be an appropriate word. A lot of people felt that. The last two Batman films were too cartoonish, which is the same thing for James Bond. So I think there was like a weird sort of collective reset for these big franchises of like taking it somewhere a little bit more grounded and a little bit grittier. So I think in cinema, we can look back at that period as a sort of a reboot for for that. Yeah, and it, I think it's notable that it, it came in the early 2000s. It is very much a post 9-11 world. That is the defining moment of this new millennium Mm. is that 11th of September 2001, everything restarted, essentially, in terms of our understanding of global diplomatic relations. There had been this hope for this global peace that would follow after the Cold War ended. Now there weren't two big blocks that were going to be fighting each other. And Mm. what we found was that the evil just became insidious and disappeared into the places that it was hard to track it down, Afghanistan and Pakistan and uh, clearly lots of other different parts of the world. South America is the location of um, Quantum of Solace, for example. Africa is alluded to here and, of course, in lots of other films. And the Mm. sense that the people pulling the strings and causing different things to happen in order to enrich themselves are Mm -hmm. the ones that are dangerous, not the governments of different countries. And that's kind of where we, where we leave bond here. It's with this understanding that they've just started to unearth a bigger conspiracy. It's not the kind of baddies like Goldfinger or Dr. No, or any of these larger than life, evil masterminds living in their secret lairs. It's international terrorism that has offshore bank accounts and that members of all kinds of governments around the world are going to be implicated in these in in these conspiracies and that in order for James Bond and M to unravel this, they're going to put themselves in considerable danger. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's almost like you know stepping into a larger world, like the first step into that larger world. Yeah, it does feel a lot like that. Yeah, which is from a screenwriting perspective as well, 
is what we do in our first act usually mm-hmm. is you have the character step into the opposite world into the world turned upside down we establish what the the real world is like for them and then they have to cross the threshold mm-hmm. and if you're setting up a franchise mm-hmm. you kind of have to leave the first installment of that franchise mm-hmm. not with a conclusion of the hero getting what they needed but actually to only then discover that the threshold is there mm-hmm. yeah that was really well put i agree so that's our summary of casino royale um i hope we've done it justice because again we're dealing with a legacy of decades of bond films and there's there's all kinds of analyses of this we just really wanted to look at this i think in, in terms of one screenplay and how it was rebooted for the 21st century and kind of redefined for a new generation. Yeah, and just as a solid story, I think it's a really great script. I think the way the characters were fleshed out and how their emotional journey was sort of portrayed in the script, I thought was really great. So I think even just for character study, you know, just to how to show little things that reveal a lot, especially in a character like like this one, who's very complicated in a very sort of quiet way. Yep. I thought it was really good. Exactly. Trying to figure out who is the kind of man who would kill and what does that do to them. Mm-hmm. I think I think that was a question worth asking in t- instead of how to get him the next yeah. invisible car. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? And it does get me excited to, uh, to go into Quantum of Solace and Skyfall and get ready for the fifth one, actually. So now I'm, I'm pumped. For, yeah, for the rest of it. So this is we'll his last time. one, right? So yeah, maybe we'll have time yeah. to do another one before the. Uh, the I next wouldn't one mind comes out. doing, you know, one of those. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Now we have more time. So thanks again, Alan. No problem. Thanks again for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please make sure you are subscribed on your favorite podcast app and do feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and all of the other social media to get episode announcements and news. Thanks again and see you next time.